Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 327, Athelred, Sail Away, Sail Away, Sail Away. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Brian, Bree, and Sergio for signing up already. Now that we've checked in with the rest of the world, let's get back to our story, which lately hasn't been going so well. In the space of about 70 years, the kingdom has gone from a preeminent power in the West to little more than a Viking hunting preserve. By the year 1000, things had become so bad that the Viking armies were now just wintering on the island. The English nobles, unable to oust them, were essentially paying for the invaders' room and board via Danegelts, which were pulled from the local peasantry. So essentially, The English rulers were so incompetent, they were pillaging their own countryside. Which, let's be honest, was turning out to be quite profitable for the Viking army that was currently spending a relaxing winter on the Isle of Wight. And when the frost thawed, they entered a new century. A new millennium, in fact. And as spring arrived, that meant that a new campaigning season had begun. And we can assume that those Vikings were once again on the move. But we can only assume, because the Chronicle makes no mention of any raids or battles that were being launched by that army. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't any raids or battles. The scribes were notoriously fickle with what they chose to include. But the fact is that for the most part, any early activity in the year 1000 by the Viking army is in a black box. We don't know what was happening there. What we are told, however, was that in the spring the English fleet had been mobilized. Well, what fleet they had. Things hadn't really been going all that well for the English naval forces. Years earlier, large portions of the fleet had deserted at the behest of Elfrich of Hampshire. And only last year, the fleet straight up ignored orders to attack a Viking army and chose instead to stay moored safely in the harbor while the land forces were slaughtered without any backup. And actually, the highborn captains were so attached to the idea of staying anchored and far from any conflict that they even went so far as to suppress their own sailors. Time and time again, the nobles were refusing to defend the kingdom. They would receive orders, they would get dressed up and ready for battle, and then, at the last moment, they would just sit there. They didn't like fighting. What they liked was being rich, going to parties, and finding creative ways to jockey for power in court. But fighting? Not so much. And faced with such useless nobles, King Athelred did the one thing he could do. He took to the field himself. If Athelbrad, Athelchris, and Athelzak wanted to abandon their posts, they would have to do it knowing that they were abandoning their king. So the Firds of England were gathered, and they amassed into a single army under the command of King Athelred. And once that was complete, the call for the English fleet was made. This time, they would do what they should have done last year. And perhaps that's why we don't hear of any raiding this year. Maybe the Vikings saw the coming storm, and realizing that the English really meant business this time, didn't want to tempt fate. 
Because while Vikings weren't cowards, they weren't fools either. Going a Viking was, at the end of the day, a job. And they generally preferred to work smarter, not harder. Vikings tended to approach raiding the way you approach Tinder on a Friday night. They're not looking for anything complicated or requiring a lot of work. Just a quick hit and run. And there was simply no need to swipe right on a massive English fleet. Instead, they loaded up their ships and they left the Isle of Wight. But Athelred and his army didn't get dressed up for nothing. And now that the Viking fleet was gone, the great army of England marched north to Strathclyde. Now, as we've talked about in the past, we're not entirely sure where this Viking army came from, nor which harbors provided them support during their years-long campaign. However, we do know that in the archaeological record, right at around this point, there's a sudden appearance of coins bearing the name of Athelred in nearby Viking ports of harbor, including in the ports of Strathclyde. And that suggests that the Vikings which have been looting the English countryside were either from or at least harboring in this area. And therefore, the decision to march into Strathclyde might have been Athelred finally taking the fight to the enemy. And he wasn't going alone. The English fleet was on its way, and it was due to meet up with the king and his army at Chester. And so they waited. And waited. And waited. And they didn't arrive. The fleet was nowhere to be seen. Once again, they were AWOL. Furthermore, there's no mention of the English fleet nor the English army engaging with a Viking army. So if the plan here was to catch the raiders as they fled to Strathclyde and force them into a battle with a full English military, well, that failed. Whatever they had planned for this joint operation, it wasn't going to happen. But that didn't mean that the army just marched home. Instead, we're told that they moved into Strathclyde and, quote, ravaged very nearly all of it, end quote. So they burned, they pillaged, they slaughtered. And as for the fleet, well, actually, this time they didn't stay moored back in harbor. They did actually set sail. They were just really late. And we're not told what delayed them whether it was their noble captains intentionally trying to avoid battle, or whether it was just regular old-fashioned incompetence. But, after a while, the English ships did arrive in the Irish Sea. Only, it was obviously too late for them to take part in joint operations. But, not wanting to go home having accomplished nothing, they decided to strike a target of opportunity. And so they ravaged the Isle of Man. And with that... Now two likely ports of call for the Viking army have been laid waste. But that didn't mean that the Viking army itself had been laid to waste. Instead, the Chronicle tells us that the Viking army returned to their old port of booty call. Strathclyde and the Isle of Man may be close to them, but Normandy, where the 22-year-old Duke Richard II was reigning, was still open. So they headed there. Now, as you might remember, Normandy had been bound for years by a papal agreement to not harbor or support any enemies of England. And this Viking army, who had been laying waste to English armies and occupying English territory and burning and pillaging everything that they could find, were pretty clearly enemies of England. But apparently, Richard II wasn't concerned about this agreement, nor the Pope, nor of England. 
because that fleet was welcomed into Norman harbors. And there, it recuperated and rearmed. But Athelred, or at least someone in his court, was finally taking this issue seriously. Because at the same time, new stone walls and ditched banks were being constructed around existing English burrs. And they were also building new burrs in defensible locations, which can function as emergency burrs. It even looks like the old Iron Age fortifications were being augmented during this period. This was a construction boom, and it was centered entirely around defending England. And that was really good timing, because in September of this year, in Scandinavia, Olaf Tryggvason died. And that meant that the struggle over the throne of Norway, a struggle that had occupied the attentions of large numbers of Viking crews, was now over, which meant those Viking crews were now free to do whatever. Furthermore, Olaf the guy who England had been supporting, at least with a wink and a nod, was not the guy who came out on top of this fight. Instead, it was King Swain Forkbeard of Denmark who once again controlled Norway. The same Swain Forkbeard who had already launched an invasion of England. So he had experience in this. And that could not be good. Compounding the problem, a couple months later, on November 17th of 1000, the Dowager Queen Elfthrith died. And this was likely an enormous loss for the court, not to mention the strategic safety of England itself. Elfthrith wasn't your typical Lady of Wessex, relegated to the background of court. She was something of a powerhouse. And that was surprising, because you'll remember that her story started when she was simply the superfine maiden of Devon, when King Edgar took an interest in her and his best friend Athelwald snuck in and struck a marriage deal before Edgar could. So then the king killed her young husband Athelwald so he could go claim her himself. You know, romance. And then when King Edgar died, her stepson became king, but he was a vicious little shit and was quickly killed by his own subjects. And unfortunately for Elfthrith, it was done at one of her properties. And it didn't help that, with the stepson out of the way, her son became king, which really looked shady. And even a thousand years later, people still eye Queen Elfthrith with suspicion. But, despite her son's rather inauspicious ascent to the throne, Elfthrith had been at the center of power. Well, on occasion. It all really depended on the whims of Athelred. But whenever she was there, you could see her influence. And on several occasions, it was clear that she and her allies had saved the kingdom from calamity. All in all, she had done an incredible job with the hand she'd been dealt. I mean, as a young woman, she'd been thrust into court merely as the hot chick and nothing more than arm candy. But she managed to wrangle that tenuous position in a kingdom notoriously hostile to women to become one of the most influential and politically astute figures in 10th century England. But... No one lives forever, and now, at the age of about 55, she was dead. And with her went one of the most reliable checks on the worst impulses of King Athelred. And then things appear to go a bit quiet. That is, if you rely on English sources. But there's something interesting that appears in the work of William of Jumiege. And he was a historian who wrote his work shortly after the Norman conquest of England. So he was looking back on these events. And it's important to note here 
that this event we're about to talk about is discussed in French history and by French historians, but it's not discussed in English history, and it's ignored or possibly entirely unknown by most English historians. Blair, Stenton, pretty much everybody I rely on for English sources didn't mention this account. And I don't know why that is. But according to William of Jumiege, in 1001, King Athelred was looking for some payback because it had not escaped his notice that Normandy was harboring the enemies of England, which was in violation of the papal agreement. And the fact was that while he'd managed to deny the Vikings safe harbor in Strathclyde and the Isle of Man, the matter of Normandy still remained unchallenged. And so long as Viking fleets could recuperate in the nearby ports of Normandy, England would be under constant threat. So Athelred called upon the greatest warriors in England, and he gave them a task. They were to board a mighty fleet, sail across the English Channel, and strike Normandy. The orders were to do to the Normans what they had already done to the Manx and the Britons of Strathclyde. In order to punish Duke Richard II for his transgressions, they were to loot the lands and massacre the population. And the intent here wasn't to make Duke Richard feel bad for the suffering of his subjects. Rather, peasants and land were how Richard and his supporting nobles made money. So Athelred was hitting the Duke in his pocketbook. And William adds that there was a second goal for this expedition. He states that the English army was instructed to then head to Rouen and capture the Duke himself. And they assumed that, due to Richard's youth, he would be unprepared for such an attack. However, historian Francois Neveu doubts this was the plan. And he suspects that the story might have been added as a flourish later on by William of Jumiege. Because the fact is that seizing French lands would have been an outright act of war. And doing something like that would probably only make sense if you had, and I'm just spitballing here, just watched a Norman duke seize the English crown in a similar way and then totally get away with it. What William had seen in his own lifetime was shocking and audacious, and he would have brought those experiences to his interpretation of earlier events. But it's very unlikely that Athelred was looking to start a fight with all of France by seizing the lands of Normandy. This was almost certainly a much smaller attempt to punish the Duke for harboring the enemies of England. But regardless of whether or not there's a side quest involving the capture of the Duke of Normandy, the fact was that the fleet was dispatched and it crossed the channel and headed for a particular slice of the Norman coast that they hoped would be least protected by Normandy's own fleet, a stretch of land called Val d'Acerre. They disembarked at Cotentin, which is now modern-day Basse-Normandy. And there, they set about the work of a medieval army. They burned buildings, they seized goods, they slaughtered the peasants. Next, the army began to march towards Rouen. And in William's version of the story, the intent was to capture Duke Richard II, and thus seize the Duchy of Normandy. But as we've already discussed, it's unlikely that was the real purpose here. But regardless of the intent, the English army never made it to Rouen. Instead, the Vicon of Cotentin, a man named Neil de Saint-Sauveur, gathered his personal retinue. Now, as he was only a Vicon, this amounted to little more than a small force of Norman cavalry. It was certainly not enough to face down a full-scale English army. But this was Normandy. 
This was land that had been claimed by the Viking Rollo only a few generations back. And in classic Viking style, he'd shared large portions of the duchy to his personal companions. And over the years, his successors had done the same. That meant that the peasants of Normandy were, at the very least, recent descendants of Viking warriors, if not former Viking warriors themselves. Basically, they were almost certainly more familiar with violence than your average European peasant. And the English army had just marched into their lands like they owned the place. So it wasn't long before Neil's army began to swell in numbers. But despite this boost in recruitment, to pull off a victory, Neil would still need the element of surprise. And so they planned an ambush. The peasant army, supported by Neil's cavalry, quietly made their way towards the English encampment near saint vaast le hogue and they moved at night, using their knowledge of the lands to make sure they remained unspotted. Then, at dawn, before the English could ready their weapons and armor, the Norman home defense force struck. And the vengeance of this peasant army was such that, even though the English forces were no doubt better trained and equipped, the invading army was still completely overrun. William tells us that the English defeat here was total, and that the peasants massacred the army, almost to a man. Only a few survivors made it back to Athelred's court to bring word of what had happened to them, and he was reportedly enraged. But sending an English army across the channel, so far from military support, had been a risky endeavor. And had Elfrith still lived, she might have told her son that this move held the risk of leaving their entire army devastated and the kingdom unprotected. But unfortunately, Elfthrith was dead, and now so were large numbers of English soldiers. And that, it turned out, was an enormous problem, because Normandy had a lot of ports. And while the English fleet disembarked at Cotentin, the Viking fleet, which was now fresh from their holiday in Normandy, set sail, and they were headed back to the now completely unprotected lands of England. In late spring, they crossed the channel and landed on English shores, possibly at Portsmouth or another harbor nearby. And once on land, the Chronicle says that the army, quote, spread terror and devastation wherever they went, plundering and burning and desolating the country with such rapidity that they advanced in one march as far as the town of Alton, end quote. The Vikings were raiding and pillaging Hampshire, even though Elderman Elfrich had just paid a sizable Danegeld to them only recently. Whoops. And then, after almost unimaginable devastation, the Ferd of Hampshire was finally mustered, and on May 23rd, they fought against the Danes at Alton. There's no record indicating that Elfrich was leading this army, by the way. Instead, the highest-ranked person appears to have been one of the king's stewards, a man named Athelweird. But based on the accounts, it appears that, unlike in recent engagements, the English army was both sizable and also possessing a bit more backbone than before. Which is another reason to suspect that Elfrich wasn't there. So this time, unlike in previous battles, the English stood their ground, and they fought tooth and nail against the raiding army. And we're told that, at the end of a brutal battle, Large numbers of the remaining English forces, including a significant number of nobles, were lost in the exchange. But for as bad as the English losses were, the Vikings suffered even worse. 
But for all the blood that was spilled and all the lives that were lost, not much was resolved by this fight. A lot of people died and nothing changed. The Vikings were still in the field. But as you know by now, Vikings were opportunists, not martyrs. And for whatever reason, Hampshire was putting up a fight. So the Danes gathered their forces, both on land and sea, and they headed west, into Devon, to the homelands of the king's recently deceased mother. And years earlier, you might remember that the Scandinavian mercenary Palig had joined the forces of King Athelred. And he hadn't come cheap. The king had to pay handsomely for his services. And it's thought that as part of his fee, he was given lands in Devonshire. And that was a very steep price. But Palig wasn't just any merc. He was part of the Scandinavian upper crust. And some sources indicate that he was also the husband of Gunhild, the sister of King Swain Forkbeard himself. And now this Viking army was marching on Devonshire towards Palig's new lands. So obviously, it was time for him to get involved. So he sent out a call, and he gathered warriors to his banner. And not just warriors, ships too. A lot of ships. And once his forces were gathered, Palig had them all embark on these ships and make their way to where the Viking fleet was moored. And there, he immediately cast off his oaths to Athelred and joined the raiders along with all of his warriors and all of his ships. And the raiding that followed was even worse than before. So many towns were burned that the Chronicle doesn't even bother listing them, choosing instead to simply state that the Vikings burned, quote, many other goodly towns that we cannot name, end quote. And eventually, the Danes, now joined by Palig and his forces, advanced upon the city of Exeter. Cole, the king's steward, and Edsi, the king's reeve, organized a defense against them. And at Pinhoe, the assembled forces of Exeter met with the Viking raiders. And once again, the English held their ground. At least for a time. But the fighting was savage. And thanks to the betrayal of Palig, they were also terribly outnumbered. And eventually, the fur of Exeter broke. And now... Without any defenses, nothing could stop the Danes from burning Pinhoe to the ground. And then, the town of Clist. Then, the raiders moved on to other villages in the area. And once again, the scribes were overwhelmed with the extent of the damage, and recorded only that they burned, quote, many goodly towns that we cannot name, end quote. In fact, that final loss in the outskirts of Exeter seems to have broken the English back because the Chronicle adds that following that fight, any time resistance was mustered, quote, soon as they joined battle, then the people gave way, and there they made great slaughter, and then they rode over the land, and their last incursion was ever worse than the one before, and then they brought much booty with them to their ships, end quote. England was in dire straits. Its main army had been defeated in France, its highest-ranked mercenary had led a mass desertion, and the remaining local forces were suffering loss after loss. The kingdom was on the verge of collapse. And, as was the case in previous years, the Vikings saw no reason to go to the trouble of leaving England for the winter. It would just waste time. So the fleet once again made their way to the Isle of Wight, which was in no position to stop them. And once again, 
they were unchallenged on land and sea. And, quote, they never ceased from their evil doings, end quote. In the following year of 1002, the Viking crisis was now threatening to overwhelm the crown. By holding the Isle of Wight with such a sizable fleet, which was also augmented by some of England's own ships thanks to Palig, well, England now found itself landlocked. The channel was utterly lost to them. And that didn't just mean that their shores were unprotected. It also meant that trade had ground down to a halt. These Vikings were wrecking the economy of England. And in an attempt to reopen the trade routes and bring an end to this blockade, Elderman Leofsiga of Essex paid a Danegeld of 24,000 pounds, which was a tremendous fee, especially for one Elderman, who no doubt drew those funds from his own subjects. As a consequence, Essex was in for some lean times. But the Danegeld seems to have worked. The Viking army left. And thus, the trade routes that Essex and England relied upon were back in business. Not long after, there's an odd note in the record. Elderman Leof Siga killed a high reeve named Effich. And he wasn't just any high reeve. King Athelred described him as, quote, the chief among my chief men, end quote. And as you might remember, reeves, especially during the reign of Athelred, often received more favor than even the highly ranked eldermen. And that's thanks in large part to the fact that Athelred appears to have lavished favor on those who were within his line of sight. So, as the reeves were often with the king, they often found themselves treated better than the eldermen who had to spend time away from court because they had shires to run. So, by killing this reeve, Elderman Leofsiga had really stepped in it. Especially considering that he killed Effich in his own house and without warning. Now, we're not told how it happened, nor why he did it. We don't know if this was the result of a feud or a power play or some kind of personal beef or maybe a drunken rage. We don't know. All we're told is that following the killing, Leof Siga was convicted of hamskun. Essentially, it was a charge of breaking and entering, crossed with battery. And that's actually a significant charge, because it was a crime that only the king could convict you of. Which tells us that Athelred became directly involved in this prosecution. Following the conviction, Leof Siga was stripped of all lands and titles. And the Elderman Sea of Essex was just left unfilled. Furthermore, Leof Siga was never heard of again. Now, personally, my guess here is that there is something personal going on between Effich and Leof Siga, and that Leof Siga incorrectly assumed that based on the fact he just bailed the kingdom out, that he could get away with offing his rival. But whatever actually happened there, it's clear that Leof Siga overplayed his hand. But speaking of that bailout, King Athelred and his court were all too aware that so long as Normandy was an open port of call for Viking fleets, England would never be safe. They're also all too aware that the Treaty of 991, which had been brokered by the frigging Pope, apparently wasn't stopping Normandy from helping the Vikings. And given how last year's punitive expedition ended, well, a new tactic was needed. So, just weeks after Leofsiga murdered Effich, we're told of a major event that occurred in court. King Athelred got married, and his new bride was Emma, the sister of Duke Richard II of Normandy. 
And you might be thinking right about now, hey, wait a minute. Wasn't Athelred already married? I seem to remember him cranking out kids like crazy. And yeah, he was. To Elfgifu of York, in fact, who was the daughter of Elderman Thored of Northumbria. And if this had been a decade earlier, that might have been a problem. Because Athelred really needed a tight grip on the Danelaw back then. But in that short stretch of years, a lot had changed. In fact, only just this year, Bishop Wolfstan of London, who was likely part of the influential Midlands Wolf dynasty, had become Archbishop Wolfstan of York, which, of course, provided more southern control over the region. Furthermore, thanks to recent law codes, the Dane law had been legally bound to the rest of England. And as for what Elf Gifu provided, well, marrying her did make Elderman Thored happy, but Elderman Thored was dead and the Wolf Dynasty now held the Elderman Sea of Northumbria. And as for Elfgifu's other job? Well, she had already provided at least nine children. So she'd served her purpose. And now, Athelred needed something that she couldn't provide. He needed a friendly Normandy. So, poor Elfgifu was either set aside, or she died, conveniently. And that cleared the way for Athelred's marriage to Emma. And, unlike Elfgifu, Emma was crowned queen, which was likely one of the terms of the peace negotiations between Athelred and Richard. And with that, the Norman threat was dealt with, at least for now. But I wonder if Athelred was a little resentful of the entire situation. Because as part of this agreement, Emma was required to take on a new name. She would now be known as Elfgifu. Yeah. Athelred made her take the same name as his first wife, which, no matter which way you slice it, is weird. And as for her dower lands, she was given estates in Exeter. You know, the same lands that the Vikings had just completely ravaged. And while his new bride was unlikely to speak Old English, I bet she still got the message. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on social media, and we have links to all our communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>